Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Oakland is a town of contradiction and complexity. It is at once a regional center for the huge East Bay and a second city to San Francisco. It is wealthy hills and industrial flatlands. It is vast stretches of Portland and some of the highest housing prices in America. Oakland's identity as a black city has been displaced, but what comes next? We'll look back on the town's history with Mitchell Schwartzer, author of Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption, because pieces of what's happening in Oakland are happening all over the Bay, and we all have a stake in what this place means beyond real estate appreciation. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Mitchell Schwartzer has been living in and writing about Oakland for decades. He's witnessed several of its transformations as the San Francisco Bay Area became a crucial node of the global techno economy, pulling Oakland into a new era and touching off a new round of displacement, homelessness, and extreme wealth generation all at once. But this isn't the first wrenching change, boom or bust, that Oakland has seen. As forces inside and outside the city limits have transformed the built environment and the populations that live among it. And those changes through time are the subject of Schwartzer's new book, Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption, which is set to become the new standard, you know, one-volume history of this place, the book you hand to someone when they ask, what happened here? Mitchell Schwartzer is a professor of architectural and urban history at the California College of the Arts. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, you set out to tell the whole city's narrative, you know, primarily through examining the, the built environment and the governance structures that generated those buildings and that infrastructure. So where do you start that story and when does it become recognizably an Oakland story? I started around 1900 because, um, so I don't talk as much in the book about the first 50 years. Oakland was founded in 1852. I started around 1900 because that's when you really start having the kind of modern Oakland, the, mm -hmm. the Oakland of streetcars, the Oakland of industry, the Oakland of lar a larger population. Uh, you know, the 1906 quake, you know, stimulated a large migration of San Francisco exile refugees. Uh, to Oakland. Uh, the First World War really ramped up industry in Oakland. The 1920s were the decade with the greatest 
construction of housing in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So from that, those are the kind of the early markers for starting the book. That's interesting. And as we kind of march down through time, um, obviously World War II looms as a major structural event for the city. Um, mm-hmm. But keep going. What are the other eras in, you know, say post-war um, Oakland history? I, yeah, definitely the Second World War, uh, major shipbuilding and wartime industries, which stimulated which uh, large migration of people to Oakland from all parts of America, including a large African-American migration. The uh, African-American population of the city went from a little under 3% in 1940 to almost 50% by 1980. So that's a big, big change. Uh, other big markers and developments uh, our deindustrialization, you know, the, that great growth of industry that really uh, starts in the te- 19-teens, by the 1960s starts to wane. The, you know, automakers start to leave Oakland mm-hmm. um, in the early 1960s, followed by electronics, the canneries, and a whole set of industries, so, so, so that by the 1990s, what had been probably other than Los Angeles, the industrial giant of, of the Western United States, Oakland is really bereft of most of its major industries. That leads to unemployment, that leads to higher crime rates. So the second, I'd say the last third of the 20th century was a really rough time for Oakland. Then right around the turn of the 21st century, after Jerry Brown was elected mayor in 98, you start to see a, risk, a kind of comeback to Oakland. Brown's 10K plan, which encouraged housing throughout the downtown area, and a set of other factors, mostly the growth of tech in the West Bay, you know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, starts to lead to a migration of people seeking more affordable housing in the East Bay. And so Oakland benefits from that. So people start flooding in, investment starts coming back to Oakland. And I'd say the last 10 to 20 years, you start to see Oakland do better economically. Yeah. You know, the story you tell of deindustrialization is a, is a quite interesting one uh, with a bunch of different factors. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, this, this was an industrial powerhouse. Um, it held on a little longer than some of the industrial cities of the East, but eventually succumbed to really a lot of the same really economic and technological forces. Exactly. Um, I think one of the biggest issues was decentralization that, and this is, this was happening in Detroit as well as in Oakland, that the let's say the, if you take the large automakers, Oakland had three large auto plants and a lot of smaller plants that were serviced the auto industry. There was General Motors in two locations, and there was also a, a firm called Fajil Motors. Uh, they produced everything from cars to trucks to buses to tractors. You know, this was a full-fledged auto industry. It had wheels and an internal combustion engine. Yeah, exactly. And what ha- what starts to happen in the early 1960s is they're looking for much. They're looking to expand their plants and they're looking for much larger land sites. You know, they're in, uh, give you an example. The site that General Motors started with. Which, is, which became the Eastmont Mall, which is now Eastmont Town Center, around 69th and Foothill. That site was like about 70 acres, and they went down to Fremont in 1963, General Motors, at, to a site that had almost was almost 400 acres. So they wanted these big, large sites, be horizontal, one story, because they could have big parking areas and lots of uh, 
you know, sheds and all sorts of the kind of facilities that you couldn't have in a tighter urban spot. And Oakland ran out of land, flat land by the mid early to mid 20th century. So there was no flat, large flat land sites in Oakland. The only place there that you could find flat land in Oakland was the Bay. And so if you look at the history of the port of Oakland from the 1960s, they, they, that's where they build most of their facilities for the great container point on Bayfill. Uh, and that ends in 1970, uh, you know, when the movement to stop filling the bay really uh, becomes, you know, final with, you know, the BCDC, the commission that really, you know, puts very stringent limits on what you can do in terms of landfill. So it, you know, for, for firms, a lot of firms, you know, they want to leave, you know, their constrained sites in Oakland and they want to build larger sites. And the only place to do that is the suburbs. So they start to leave the city. Other firms leave the area. You know, right. they, uh, they will go to back to the Midwest or to the American South. And eventually firms start going overseas, as we all know, through globalization. Yeah. Capitalism caught up with all of them, pretty much. Um, so, you know, one of those stories that's uh, really interesting in, in World War Two, I think a lot of people are now familiar with the story of uh, migrants from the South, primarily um, you know poor white migrants, and also a lot of black people coming in. Um, you tell a story about the the industrial giants, you know, your Kaisers, your Bechtels, the the people who hired all of those migrants and created a lot of uh, these jobs, and how they attempted to sort of manage what the war had brought. And how they attempted to sort of reconceptualize Oakland. Um, what what did they want the city to become once they realized that decentralization was at play, that there wasn't a lot of land left in Oakland? Right. What what they wanted was to follow what San Francisco was doing. So San Francisco and Oakland both were connected through the Bay, Bay Area Council, which was a consortium of industrial leaders, Southern Pacific Railroad, Bank of America, PG&E, et cetera. And the Our large, local elites, basically. This is the 1950s, right? The elites of the 50s, not today. And the elites of, of the 50s and late 40s and into the 1950s, what they're planning is to create in San Francisco a, a kind of a, a new type of city. You know, San Francisco was a very, had a very mixed economy too, working class jobs, lots of industry, port activities. And they're looking to the future. They're seeing that changing. They're kind of predicting the deindustrialization. And they're trying to prepare San Francisco for an office economy and a tourist economy, white collar employment. And they do that through urban renewal also, right? San Francisco has these big urban renewal sites on, on both sides of the downtown, the produce district to the north, it becomes Embarcadero Center. And Yerba Buena, the Yerba Buena, which was kind of a working class district, uh, mm -hmm. that becomes the cultural hotel museum district. And Oakland looks, to, looks at what San Francisco is doing and says, we need to do pretty much the same thing. And they come up with this very quixotic idea that Oakland can become the command and control center for the East Bay. If San Francisco is for the larger Bay Area, Oakland will be that for the East Bay. It, it will have a much larger downtown with many more offices. It will have more shopping. I don't, you know, they even thought there would be more tourists coming, although that was a, a dream, a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. And so they, 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 they think, the business leaders think that it's okay to have decentralization to Alameda County outside of the city of Oakland because somehow Oakland will benefit from this. Mm -hmm. 
which is totally strange. How did that work? (laughs) It didn't work at all. You know, the firms left and they were independent and they, Oakland didn't benefit at all. And the big difference between Oakland and San Francisco, let's say from the fifties into the sixties and seventies was that Oakland was a poorer city, Mm. you know, relatively speaking. And it also had a much larger black community that was poorer too, and prevented from the same kind of opportunities that the white community enjoyed. So the, the, the kind of successes of San Francisco you know, uh, becoming an office and tourist city were not possible in Oakland. And because of all that, uh, you know, the Oakland plans, you know, this was called Metropolitan Oakland Area Plan, uh, you know, to create that office office downtown didn't work. And Oakland tried urban renewal in the 60s for downtown. They tore out 18 plus blocks, entire blocks of downtown to create a gigantic office and shopping mall. And the shopping mall never happened at all. They were aiming to attract white suburban shoppers from the Oakland Hills and the nearby East Bay suburbs. They even planned the 980 freeway as a direct link into the shopping mall. You didn't have to have to get out of the, you know, get onto the streets of Oakland. You could drive from the freeway right into the parking garage of the shopping mall. That was the plan, you know, and it was totally uh, unrealistic. It totally ignored what Oakland was becoming. Uh, you know, which was a very, very, a city of a lot of different income groups, you know, from the wealthy to the poor. And they ignored all of the lower strata and aimed on the high strata. And the reality was the new freeway system that, you know, was being built in the 50s and 60s. And then the BART system allowed suburban residents to go directly from the suburbs to San Francisco without, you know, driving under or over Oakland. Yeah. And so they didn't have to, there was no need for them to go to the Oakland downtown. And so the, the big hopes for the shopping and office development downtown were not realized. Yeah. The offices went east too, to Walnut Creek and how that's the other new, new, fully new developments, not office buildings in downtown Oakland. We're talking with Mitchell Schwartzer about his new book, Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Happy Friday. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Mitchell Schwartzer about his new book, Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. And we'd love to hear from you. Is there a built feature, you know, building, a park, something, maybe even a freeway, that defines your neighborhood? Give us a call now, 
866-733-6786. Tell us what the building is or what the feature is and how it defines your neighborhood. Uh, that's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, we're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your comments about that thing that defines your neighborhood to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Mitchell, I do want to talk about some Oakland neighborhoods. And in particular, this book is just so rich with information about so many individual places, you know, from Crocker Highlands, Sequoia, the Fruitvale, different places in Deep East, you know, Jack London, Adams Point. There's it's if you want to know about your neighborhood. I mean, this is this is the book that I kind of wanted to exist for people who want to know that kind of stuff. Um, And I want to start out with perhaps one of the most fraught and heavily backed neighborhood development schemes, which maybe just maybe is finally working after 60 years. Can you guess what it is? Jack London. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, tell us about the history of Jack London, because I think visitors sometimes come in, they walk around and they're like, man, it's so beautiful down here and there's all these things, but also why is it so empty? <laughs> yeah, I think that ties into what I was just talking about earlier. Jack London Square start, was christened in 1951. Uh, it was, there, were, there was a couple restaurants there like two or three restaurants that had opened up along the waterfront as the waterfront, you know, as the industrial and maritime uses were migrating further out. This is like Seawolf? Yeah. Yeah. Seawolf was one of them and Scots came and a few of them, right? In the early fifties. And there was actually an early boat motel, a motel (laughs) that that advertised itself as for boaters that you would boat to the motel, you would dock there and then you stay in the motel and then you go back on your boat and go somewhere else. So, you know, and and it developed organically through the 1950s and 60s and 70s. There was even a a small rustic village, you know, modeled on perhaps Mendocino County uh, called Jack London Village that sold curios from Poland and Afghanistan and all around the world. So it was that it was that kind of tourist. But the city wanted this to happen, though, right? I mean, I've seen like a waterfront development report from the 1950s where they sort of have renderings of like the wonderful future of Jack London. You know, they did. They wanted this to happen. And it was all going along at a kind of I would call it a very modest pace until the 80s. And what happened in the 80s is the the kind of powers that be the port of Oakland and the city of Oakland and the merchants at Jack London Square saw Pier 39, right? And they saw what had happened earlier with Ghirardelli Square and the cannery. And they're like, wow, we should do a lot more. And so there's a plan in the, in the mid to late 1980s to create a regional shopping center in Jack London Square. And the regional shopping center would have stores like The Gap or Sharper Image, you know, the kind of stores you find in a, a mall or a small or, or a, you know, a, a power center. And it failed. They didn't come for the same reasons the retailers didn't come to city center in the 70s. They didn't come to Jack London Square in the 80s. And so all those spaces were vacant. Uh, They got a Barnes and Noble. That was the big coup, which is now uh, the plank, which is a bowling alley bar restaurant that's doing okay. But otherwise, they didn't get much. So question, why did it work in Emeryville? But not in Oakland. Well, one thing is they weren't giving providing free parking. That was a big problem. So you had to pay for parking, number one. Number two, there was no easy freeway access. You know, the ramps weren't leading easily to Jack London Square. So it was complicated to get to Jack London Square. Three, Oakland had a bad reputation in those days. You know, there was a very high crime rate. People 
and still in, in some sectors has a bad reputation. You know, you mentioned Oakland and people think about the negatives of, of the latter part of the 20th century. So for all those reasons, the realtors were scared off. They were like, oh, this is not a place that we're going to, you know, yeah, paid parking and hard freeway access. This is not going to work. Eastmont Mall failed for a lot of those reasons, right? Eastmont Mall wasn't right off of a freeway, you know, and so, you know, it, it lasted about 20 years and it also had crime problems. So for those reasons, Emeryville, which was kind of like Emeryville advertised itself as a blank slate to developers. We're going to allow you to do almost anything. We're a tiny city. And we've been developing retail, you know, now for quite some time, right? Uh, so from, from the every, every marketplace to the Powell Street and eventually leading to Bay Street, you know, and Ikea. So Emeryville had this great track record. Oakland did not. Oakland retail really collapsed, right? Oakland had many department stores. By the end of the 20th century, there was just one. There was the Sears, on Broadway, which has since closed. So... Oh, yeah. And then the Oakland tried again. They tried again in 2008, 2009. The port tried again. They built another and uh, large facility that was supposed to, like, it was modeled on San Francisco's ferry market. They looked at the ferry market, which I think opened in 2004, and said, whoa, we could do that for the East Bay, create a food artisanal market. And they, they, they built the building and not, no one came. And so that building <laughs> remains largely empty. It's a, it, I think Sunset's in there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sunset Magazine. Um, that said, that said, the last couple years of Jack London, it appears like it's finally starting to work. Do you agree with that? Or is it just my perception that there's more people sort of out on the weekends? I think it is. I think you're right. I, I think what's happening is that they realized – we need to, it's kind of, what I would call it is the Oakland Chinatown formula. If you look at Oakland retailing and restaurants in the, let's say the 1980s, the only really night 24 seven district downtown was Chinatown. And that's because a lot of people lived in Chinatown. So it had a built-in market. And that's what Jack London realized in the, in the last 10 years, we need to build residence, residences around Jack London Square. And you see a lot of residential buildings now going up around the square. And that'll provide our core market. And then we'll be able to bring in people, you know, once they're coming and there's some, you know, vitality and activity, word will get spread around and people will come from elsewhere, from other parts of the East Bay, maybe even San Francisco. So you're starting to get a little bit about of that. Uh, but I mean, that that marketplace building, you know, is it's is still empty. empty. Yeah, it's offices are it's occupied by offices on the upper floors, but on the ground floor it's largely empty. So it still hasn't, you know, it, Oakland still isn't a tourist destination, you know, yeah. despite its marvelous qualities. Yeah. We're talking with Mitchell Schwartzer about his new book, Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. And we do want to hear from you. How do you see Oakland's changes reflected in your neighborhood? Or if you want to tell us a different kind of story, tell us about what feature building, park, freeway, uh, crane <laughs> defines your Oakland neighborhood. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, I want to talk about a different kind um, of neighborhood 
And that would be um, Adams Point, another really interesting Oakland neighborhood there uh, near Lake Merritt. And mm-hmm. it, I, I guess it's interesting in, to me in part because it has the kind of density now that I think a lot of at least the kind of Yimby folks would like to see built in many more places. And how did that come to be? Adams Point started off as single family housing mostly. And it's it, even downtown was single family housing. If you go way back in time, you know, most urban districts, especially districts nearer to the core of a city, you know, start off with commercial in small parts, commercial sectors, and then around it is all residences and usually, you know, uh, single family houses with large yards. And Oakland had, you know, if you go back to the 19th century downtown, there were houses with yards that had uh, produce, they were growing produce, you know, <laughs> and over time they get replaced as the city grows, they get replaced by other types of uses. So denser uh, residential buildings, apartments, and then commerce and industry and all sorts of things. Adams Point, which is, you know, outside of downtown, it's on the, what I would call the wealth corridor of Oakland, which stretches up Broadway and then curves around Grand Avenue. So it leads toward both Piedmont and toward Piedmont Avenue and Rockridge. It's on that route, right? As opposed to the industrial corridors, which led toward West Oakland and toward Jingletown, okay? Along the waterfront. Adams Point was, Favor, you know, favorably located um, for residential development. And what happened in the 1920s already is when, you know, you have a single family district and it's doing really well. Developers see that and they say, well, let's put in some apartment buildings. We can, you know, tear down a couple houses here and there and put up apartment buildings and, and make a lot more profit from that. And so they start doing that. And you start to see that around Adams Point. You also see it around the lake. The whole perimeter of the lake, right, mm-hmm. starts to turn from mansions in the 19th century. By the early 20th century, you start to see apartment buildings going up, both in what's called the Gold Coast of Oakland, like Alice Street, and uh, you know, toward the lake, Madison, Alice, toward the lake. Uh, they replace the mansions. Same thing starts to happen in Adams Point, not as fully. Uh, you know, there's only one mansion left in downtown Oakland. That's the Cameron Stanford House. But in Adams Point, you still have a lot of the old uh, single family buildings mixed in with apartments. And then in the 60s, there's a whole second wave of apartment buildings. So Adams Point goes from into being, I would call, largely apartments, largely uh, multifamily uh, buildings. That's I think that's one of the big issues that we're facing right now is, uh, you know, we have all these single family districts in Oakland. Most of Oakland is single family uh, housing and we need more housing, a lot more housing. Where do you build it? Do you build it along the commercial corridors or do you actually do the Adams, what happened in Adams Point and also in Clinton Park across the lake? Hmm. Similar uh, events happen where a lot of single family homes were replaced by uh, multifamily buildings. Do you do it in single family neighborhoods? Yeah. Let's bring in some callers. Uh, Chris from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi. I've been living in downtown Oakland for the last 20 years. And there's been a lot of development. It's a different place now. There are a lot more people, even after COVID. But the city of Oakland planning here is really, I think, inadequate. They've allowed a hodgepodge of large buildings that are not well designed, that do not look good. Oakland had a good skyline, had some, has really great old buildings, but it's all just being ignored with a bunch of boxy, huge buildings. And it's just, there's no need to have ugly buildings in downtown Oakland, but they seem to like it. 
Um, what do you think, Mitchell? You are uh, an architectural historian. Uh, what do you think of yeah, our skyline? I, I, I'd be a little, uh, you know, I would say that some of the buildings are, you know, I'm not as thrilled with, and other ones I really like. There's a couple along um, uh, Upper Franklin that I like that were built recently. I think the Atlas, which is now perhaps almost the tallest building in the city, which is built atop a former parking garage on 14th and Franklin isn't so bad, but some of them are, as the caller says, not of the greatest design quality. That's just what happens when you, when you have a development boom, you're gonna get buildings of all sorts. We're lucky in Oakland, we got some great buildings, great high-rise buildings in the mid-century, like Kaiser Center, first interstate at 14th and Broadway, then the Ordway building, which is right next to Kaiser Center, uh, if you like modernism, maybe this could be also a debate whether one likes modernism <laughs> or older styles. But uh, and then we got some mediocre buildings. So it's really it has been a hodgepodge without question. Yeah. You yeah. know, how should we think about, you know, those towers basically became kind of like the symbol of what we call gentrification in Oakland. How do you how do you see them? I mean, you know, because they're gentrification is really a neighborhood phenomenon. This is kind of a downtown thing, but they became symbolic of the larger changes in the city anyway. I, I think they're really needed. I think I, I applaud the idea of having a 40 story or 400 plus foot residential buildings right next to the BART stations on 19th and 12th. It makes complete sense. Uh, you want to have more residents. You want to have affluent residents downtown. That's where they're going to want to be. And so it makes sense to go way up in density. If you look at the first housing that was built, let's say in the early 2000s or late 1990s, it's you know four stories, you know around, you know not far from Swan's Market. Uh, that may that you know that doesn't make sense today, you know with with our housing shortage. And also, uh, we want to have a more vibrant downtown. So if you're going to add thousands more residents, it's going to improve the you know it's going to become an active downtown with people on the streets all the time. It's going to be safer. So it makes sense, I think, to increase the density, especially downtown. Yeah. Do you think they led to more displacement? Just the just the, the sense that like Oakland was um, becoming like a wealthier place that could support new apartment buildings or new condos. I think they didn't lead to any direct displacement because they were largely built atop com- what were commercial lots of, you know, very small one to three story commercial buildings or parking garages or even vacant lots. So there was no direct displacement downtown at all. Uh, But clearly, the more you build in a city, downtown and then in West Oakland and then uh, in other part, you know, other areas, it's improving the image of the city. The real estate values are going to go up throughout the city. And that has been the case. Some of it has to do with the building, but other other of it, other of it has to do with the raising rising real estate values throughout the Bay Area, especially in San Francisco and the peninsula and elsewhere. So Oakland, there's a, you know, there's not a lot of control, right, that a city can have about, you know, real estate values when you're part of a larger region and a larger economic engine. And so I I think, yes, there has been displacement because rents have gone up, housing values have gone up a lot, tremendously over the last 20 years. But at the same time, how much of that is caused by new development? I don't think most of it is caused by the new development. It was happening before the new development was going on. And, it, and it's really a product of, you know, the overall barrier economic engine, the tech engine. You know, I've really, in my own work, really tried to reckon with this. Like, what can a city do? 
Like people expect the mayor to like fix, you know, they, they focus this energy like, well, the mayor should stop this displacement. The mayor should stop real estate values from going up. Do you think there are real things that a city, if it had the political will, could do to keep housing prices from going up? I don't think you can keep housing prices from going up, but you can mandate, and the city has been started to do this in recent years, you can mandate that new housing developments include a larger portion of units that are affordable. So the affordable, you know, at first the, the, the new developments that were going up in downtown had no affordable units. And now the percentage has gone up from five to eight, and sometimes it's getting toward 20 now. And so that's what the city, that's what a city can do. It can negotiate with developers to increase the percentage of units that will be deemed affordable to, uh, you know, mid, low, you know, moderate income people as, a, as compared to market rates. At, at the present moment, if you're building downtown, especially in high rise, it's so expensive that the market rate units are going to really only be, I think, affordable for the top 10% of uh, wage earners. It's really a small segment now. And that's one of the tragedies of real estate. It's not an Oakland story. It's an overall real estate story. What I talk about in the book is if you look at the 1920s, when, when there was that huge development boom, right? The developers were building for the working class, the middle class, and the upper class. They were building different types of housing for all different classes. If you look at the mid-century, let's say the 50s and 60s, they scale back to just the middle class and the upper class. And if you look now, it's really just the upper class. So unless the developers are forced to add affordable units to those upper class developments, you're not going to get any housing, new housing built for anyone but the top 10%. With, you know, and, yeah. uh, and then you'll have filtered housing for everyone else, which is the, which is the typical way that poor people uh, you know, get into housing. They they move into older housing that the let's say the middle and upper class has moved on from because they've moved to newer developments. They move into that older housing. We're talking with Mitchell Schwartzer about his new book, Hellatown: Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. And we're getting some of your comments in. Michelle writes: I recently moved from Piedmont Ave neighborhood, where I love to walk in historic Mountain View Cemetery, to the Millsmont area, where I walk the historic grounds. Of Mills, both are full of such rich Oakland history and are gems of Oakland. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Mitchell Schwartzer about his new book, Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. What do you think the identity of Oakland should be? 
Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also keep shouting out your neighborhoods or neighborhood uh, features. Get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. want to add Pat from Oakland into the show. Hi, folks. Uh, thank you, Mr. Schwarzer, for being here because I'm looking forward to getting the uh, book this weekend. I live in uh, what's now called, I guess, the Bushride Park neighborhood. Uh, when we first moved there 30 years, uh, nearly 30 years ago, uh, nobody wanted to talk about it. They called it uh, Lower Rock Ridge, uh, Timmerscal, anything but Bushride Park. And now it's supposed to be the new place where everybody is willing to pay a fortune to live. Well, can you tell us a bit about the history of there and Idora Park, which I guess is part of that footprint? Because um, now we've got a bunch of uh, uh, what do you call storybook homes and uh, little bungalows. And I, I like the community like it is. And I really don't want to see any tall buildings going in this neighborhood. I, I like the large yards we have. I know they could stick another house in there, but then the I wouldn't like my home as much if I had a, a another home in my backyard. Hmm. Thank you for that, uh, Pat. Thanks, thanks a lot. And also, that neighborhood Bushrod also was famously the hottest single neighborhood in the country a couple years ago. Uh, one of the pretty amazing to watch uh, that and watch the the sales go there. Um, Mitchell, can you tell us a little bit more about Bushrod and Edor Park? Yeah, Bushrod Park was uh, the name of the neighborhood comes from the park, which was one of the original parks in the 1907 bond issue passed by Mayor Frank Mott. He took alongside another one was Defremery, another side was another one was Mosswood. These were he took a couple of estates and Bushrod Park and Bushrod and created small neighborhood parks. Uh, what what has happened? What's happening in Bushrod is interesting because Bushrod is you know quintessential North Oakland, right, nearing Berkeley. And what's been happening in North Oakland, I think, is probably the area of the most intensive gentrification in the city, uh, in, in the sense that uh, it's toward Berkeley. Historically, it was the first place that uh, that African Americans from West Oakland moved when they were leaving West Oakland was North Oakland, and then West Berkeley. So they started moving to these neighborhoods nearby. And so Bushrod Park and a lot, and if you go west to Golden Gate and those neighborhoods, they became largely African-American in the 60s and 70s. And now they're turning large, they're turning increasingly white and other groups. So you're seeing a kind of diversification of the, of the population. And that's just what happens in cities. The you know, African-American migration largely ended by the 80s there's not a lot of influx. So the population in Oakland overall is going down. Now it's a little under 21% overall from that high of over 48%. And the Asian population and the Latino population have gone up dramatically right after the 1965 Naturalization Act. So the city has become much, it's not white and black as much as it used to be. It's more, you know, four major groups, whites, blacks, Asian Americans, Latino Americans. and that's reflected in a lot of neighborhoods, right? A lot throughout the city, from East Oakland to West Oakland or North Oakland, as well as the hills. So Bushrod Park is changing, and uh, that's just the reality. Uh, in terms of uh, the development, I, I, you know, I, I don't t- totally sympathize that, you know, w- 
wanting to keep the kind of character of those wonderful small neighborhood streets, like Idar Park, which replaced an amusement park that was built early in the 20th century uh, with, with uh, storybook homes. Uh, I, I think, you know, probably the most sensible ideas would be to take streets like Telegraph Avenue and MLK, which have a lot of development sites, right? They have a lot of small commercial buildings or even gas stations or, you know, very and stitch the new housing uh, into there yeah and put four or five story apartment buildings on those before you go into the actual neighborhoods themselves Mm -hmm. right that would that seems to be a first step that's happening throughout the east bay and that should continue as if you know in order not to disrupt so much the uh neighborhood quality inside certainly you know if you uh if there's a bard station there isn't one in bushrod park you know you're between macarthur and ashby but certainly around the macarthur and ashby uh stations there should be much more intensive development right and rockridge um uh, fascinating yeah it's the only one it's the only one that doesn't have a uh transit village planned you know there's one for coliseum that's that's starting Fruitville has an active one. MacArthur has an active one. West Oakland's about to break ground on one. Uh, Lake Merritt Station is going to have much higher uh, higher density housing. Rockridge is the only one that doesn't. And I mean, I think just on equity and other reasons, it should. Yeah. Um, a- uh, Adam tweets, please talk about Prop 13, property values going up without any extra property taxes. If the taxes went up, all the residents would vacate single-family homes, opening up housing stock to child-rearing uh, aged people. And I, I want to jump off this question a little bit, too, because like everybody who's thought about housing in California, thought a lot about Prop 13, which, as most people know, 1978 California constitutional amendment that capped property tax growth and you know, kind of took what was a kind of clean, simple wealth tax and did some very interesting things to it. One question that I have about it for you, Mitchell, just having having read your book and knowing a lot of things that you've thought about, given that it kind of advantages longer term residents and it took effect when Oakland was near its peak in black population in the late 1970s, do we think it slowed what we would call gentrification? Did it slow displacement or were there other unintended consequences of the law that canceled out what should have been, helped people stay in their homes for longer? I'm not sure it slowed gentrification in the, as much as in the 70s. There really wasn't much, there wasn't any thought of that. The, you know, Oakland in the 70s, really through the 90s, was suffering from disinvestment. Oh, totally, totally. But I mean, the law is still on the books. And if you right, got in in, in the, the 70s or 80s, oh, oh, okay. by the 2000s, right, like your property right. taxes are far lower, which yeah. seemed like it would have helped, you know, be a break on pushing people out of their homes. You know, I think it's a crazy law. You know, I mean, you know, I I, I live across the street from uh, folks who bought earlier. I bought this house in 2002, so I'm paying it at 2002 level. The people we live across the street from bought in the early 60s, and, and they're, I think they're paying about you know five percent of what we pay annually in property taxes. And then there are people up the block who just bought houses, and they're going to be paying two and a half times what I pay. So it, 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 it creates a kind of crazy, unequal situation. Uh, it also, in the, you know, starting from the late 70s when it was enacted and through the 80s and 90s, and then when you add to it the Reagan cutbacks in government, you know, so between the Reagan cutbacks in government and then Prop 13 mandated cutbacks, you know, it took all this money from cities around the, around the state. The cities are really starved for money in the 80s and 90s and, and thereafter. So it, the ability of cities to actually do things like 
you know, like in Oakland to actually maintain the parks, to maintain the library, you know, to do, to do things schools. other than schools, you know, all of that has been really suffering because of this, because of Prop 13. Yeah. Um, Max writes, uh, reflecting actually a, a few other uh, comments. I'm a San Francisco native who was driven out of the city to Oakland in the face of mismanaged development. I currently live at Fifth Avenue Point, a once bustling industrial shipyard and now a productive artist colony. If you've never seen it, it's actually a totally fascinating place. Uh, Max says we're currently faced with the behemoth that is Brooklyn Basin, all the terror that large scale condo developments bring to us who have chosen alternative lifestyles within a city we love. What do we make of of Brooklyn Basin, which um, is a if you haven't seen it? a really big change along Oakland's uh, waterfront. Well, I, I mean, I think Brooklyn Basin, they planning, they were planning, I think last I read 3,500 units mm-hmm. and they built, I think it, they built less than half of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're going too slowly. I, I mean, I, I would like to see the development ramped up for Brooklyn Basin because we need the housing. I mean, that's and that and that was, you know, kind of under really underutilized industrial land. If you look around Brooklyn Basin, what you see nearby are a series of motels further along. You know, there's a there's a a Best Western and a Motel 6, you know, not exactly the high density, you know, developments you'd like to see. So on the one hand, I think we need the higher density residential development. I'd also, on the other hand, like to see more parkland along the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Brooklyn Basin is providing enough parkland. They opened a beautiful park on part of what had been the Ninth Avenue Terminal. They preserved mm-hmm. part of it, demolished part of it, and it's actually quite a nice park. Uh, but I'd love to see much more parkland along the waterfront. We don't have a lot. Jack London Square did not, you know, give. There's not much around Jack London Square. There's just a little bit, yeah. and so I'd like to see the whole process ramped up. If you look at the park right by the, it's called Estuary Park. Uh, right where the channel meets the estuary, you know, that yep. whole transition from Lake Merritt to the estuary is not still developed. You can't walk at this moment in time still from Lake Merritt to the Oakland estuary, yeah. you know, and, and channel and the estuary park is just kind of look, it looks really bad. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, get uh, to some more callers. They want to talk to you. Uh, Terrence in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi, um, I just wanted to put a big plug in for the ferry service down in Jack London Square. I mean, I know that we have the AC Transit that goes across the bay and, of course, BART that we know about. Um, but the San Francisco Bay Ferry has truly transformed my commute. Um, you can bring your bike on it. It's short. They just lowered the prices post-pandemic. Um, but I was wondering if your guests could talk more about, like, the evolution of the ferry service in Oakland. Yeah, I'm also a huge ferry fan. I mean, talk about a beautiful way to commute. It's almost unfair. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. It, it's kind of, I mean, it, there's a sad part to that history because we had an amazingly extensive ferry network up until the late 1950s, right? Before, you know, that was developed, you know, in the uh, 19th and early 20th century, right? In, in conjunction with a great transit, rail transit system called the Key System and Southern Pacific Systems. So we had this amazing system and, and they, you know, the obsession with automobiles and freeways led to its complete abandonment by, by the early 1960s. And it really wasn't until the earthquake of 1989 that ferry system really started ramping up again because the Bay Bridge was down for a month 
and ferries became an alternative and then people started liking them and they you know we have more of them i would love to see more still you know the only place you can go from the down to, you know the jack london ferry is just is to the ferry building and then to fisherman's wharf it would be great to have a ferry that connected oakland with angel island because mm. go from san francisco to angel island but not oakland it would be nice to have a ferry from oakland to marin there's currently no ferry in, in that direction there there was one to south san francisco for a while i'm not sure if it started again but yeah, I think we're at, it, it's a fantastic way to get around the Bay Area. It takes pressure off of the highways, which are just getting more congested all the time. Uh, and we don't have our second BART tube yet, another BART line. And that could be a long time into the future because I haven't heard any announcements yeah. about real serious planning. So the ferries are really an important alternative for, get, for creating a, an infrastructure of getting around. You know, Walter writes, what do you think of Jerry Brown's role in Oakland development? He seems to be a one-man movement who strengthened the mayor's office, but his 10,000 upper-income market housing vision seemed hostile, hostile to Oakland's black population. Do you think market rate first, the other half later is a good plan? I, look, I think he gets unfairly lambasted for some of these issues now. If you look at, you know, when he was running for office in 1997, 98, I guess, uh, we're talking about a city that had very little investment in residential housing for decades, right? Since the sixties, really. So, you know, a city that was really hemorrhaging, you know, a lot of businesses, hemorrhaging residents, commerce. And so he try, he's trying to bring in money to the city. He's trying to bring in new energy and, and every city needs that. I mean, Oakland, I don't think Oakland wanted to become a kind of desolate place with no investment. Uh, I don't think he's responsible for the reduction in size of the black population. Like, like I said earlier, that goes well beyond what he, uh, what any mayor could get involved with. It was real. That's a product of long-term, you know, migration trends around the country. Blacks moving to the suburbs, blacks moving to the American South, and not a lot of influx. And then a huge influx, as I mentioned earlier, of Latinos and Asian Americans, and then later more affluent whites. Those are those are large economic trends that are well beyond what uh, any mayor could get involved with. So I, I generally think of him positively. I think what he tried to do in the late 90s and it's it was the beginning of a of a moment for downtown Oakland to start reviving. And it made sense for downtown Oakland to revive. So, I, you know. Yeah, I, I think one thing that people forget already is that the. In, in terms of like raw numbers of black people leaving the city, it was really during the economic downturn when things got, when many, many people um, ended up leaving. And in fact, the rate of change has slowed considerably. Um, Michael has a really interesting uh, tweet for us um, as we get down here to the end. So many of Oakland's food factories closed in just the time I've been living here. Alita Pasta with its myriad shapes put Dicetto to shame, Granny Goose, Mother's Cookies, and Fleischmann Yeast. And I want to jump off just that last one, Fleischmann Yeast, because one of the things that also happened during deindustrialization is Fleischmann Yeast was like really putting out from really nasty chemicals into the West Oakland neighborhood where it was located. And I, I thought maybe you could reflect on, you know, where the city, you know, it, it really has changed. There's very little industry in the city, but there's still a lot of historical cleanup to do of many of those places, particularly in West Oakland. Um, what do you see as the path forward uh, for Oakland's neighborhoods that are, you know, were sacrificial landscapes during that industrial boom? I think it, 
you know, it's really a, a, a touchy area when you're talking about new people moving into industrial zones, right? Which started with artists, you know, back in the 80s, and then, you know, extended to other groups as those neighborhoods started to become more attractive. The more you have residences in industrial areas, the more the residents place pressure on the industries not to be noisy, not to be polluting, right? Because they don't want to live next to that. That makes sense, right? On the other hand, where do the industries go, right? So mixing into, mixing more residences and building more residential communities in industrial areas always is going to create conflicts, and it has in Oakland. Uh, on the uh, on the other hand, you know, for the larger West Oakland is a great example of a neighborhood that has been just devastated historically by government and private industry. You know, from from the construction of the Cypress Freeway, which collapsed in the earthquake to the BART, to the post office, to large scale urban renewal and slum clearance. West Oakland was pretty much torn apart. Mm -hmm. I would say largely in the 1960s, uh, the 50s and the 1960s. And has since then, things have been much calmer uh, and they've been able to take on issues like the pollution coming from trucks at the port, right? All the truck traffic at the port and, and mm -hmm. industries like the yeast factory which is a good thing that they're able to focus on that because the, those enormous uh, uh, dislocated actions are not occurring anymore. Yeah. Um, this has been really so interesting. Mitchell Schwartzer's new book, Helitown, Oakland History of Development and Disruption. Thank you so much for joining us and just sharing, sharing all this knowledge about the town. We really appreciate it, Mitchell. Thank you, Alexis. It was my pleasure couple last comments. Take us out. Just wanted to make sure people who are shouting out their neighborhoods uh, got it. Joan writes, I grew up in the shadow of the Mormon temple. In fact, I watched it being built. We used the parking lot for roller skating and sat on the hillside edge to watch fireworks on the 4th of July. And Kent writes, I live in the Rose Garden, Piedmont Avenue area, and I live in Glen Echo Creek. It's amazing how it pops up in different spots from Mountain View Cemetery down to Lake Merritt. There's strange little spots of nature amongst the houses. It can make you forget you're in a city sometimes. But Oakland is my city. Thanks again to Mitchell Schwartzer for his new book, Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.